Welcome to the Contracting Officer Podcast. It's not just for contracting officers. If you're anywhere in the GovCon world, this podcast is for you. Thanks for joining us in our mission to make government contracting better, one contract at a time. Our topic today is small business innovative research. We've talked about this topic many times on the podcast, but this time we're bringing in a little bit of outside perspective. Today, we welcome special guest Jeff Orison to talk about why SIBRs are such an amazing opportunity for small businesses and for the government. All right, let's jump into my conversation with Jeff. We'll start by letting him introduce himself. My name is Jeff Orison. I'm one of the co-founders of Eastern Foundry and Federal Foundry. And we got started you know, a little over five years ago now with a real mission to try to help small businesses gain access to the federal market. And you know, for those people who are familiar with the Eastern Foundry side, we were doing that through physical co-working and incubation. And then probably three years ago, we saw that we needed to be able to reach a bigger audience. And we would just open our second location and we were finding that our communities were we're not interacting as well as we wanted them to. So we started really looking at digital solutions. So online education, services, software, and that was the genesis for Federal Foundry. So for the past couple of years, we've been producing solutions that help small businesses access the federal market that are agnostic to where they physically are. And over the past two years, we've really taken a focus on SBIR, SIBRs, just because we think it's just such a wonderful way for new businesses to access the federal market. And because it attracts and provides something that a, a classically pure play commercial company is interested in, which is growth capital. And then that becomes this almost like a gateway drug that exposes them to the federal market and then helps them start seeing that maybe there are bigger and better opportunities within it. We've talked about Sivers on quite a few podcasts. And today we're looking at it from a little bit different angle with Jeff. A quick refresher on SIBRS. We won't go into detail. There's separate podcasts on that. SIBRS stands for Small Business Innovative Research. And it's a competitive program that encourages U.S. companies, domestic small businesses, to get engaged with the federal research and development folks across agencies for technologies that have potential for commercialization. The SIBR program is for small businesses, small business innovative research. This enables small businesses to get funding from the federal government to develop technologies that they might otherwise not have funding for with the intention that the federal government is doing the country good and the economy good by investing in things that the government gets to use, but also have commercial potential. So you have to have something you want to study, you want to work on, that not only will help the commercial market, but also meets some specific government research and development needs. They might not even know they have the need at first. <laughs> you, may, you may give them an idea and they say, yes, that is a great idea for us. So Jeff, tell me a little bit about why you think SIBRs are an important, and, and I'll put words in your mouth, a healthy part of the GovCon ecosystem. Yeah, so I think that SIBRs play a really important role within the, the greater government contracting ecosystem. If we sort of take as a given that the government doesn't make anything, you know, they, they're not in the business of production. They're in the business of 
funding other people to produce for them, right. then you know, there becomes it becomes a real um, kind of a self fulfilling prophecy that the companies that are in, in trends, the companies that understand the goals and the interests of the individual agencies, are going to keep coming back and delivering. You know, I, I think a, a nice analogy is the iPhone here. For for longest time, all the iPhones had a you know your standard headphone jack, that yep. little you know, that little round you know kind of little one inch long thing. And you know, if you'd ask any customer, you know, hey, do you want headphones? Yes. You know, okay, we're just going to keep including a headphone jack. And it took someone like Apple coming along with the market power that they have to say, you know what, that's an antiquated thing. We you no longer need the headphone jack. We're getting rid of it. And we're just going to assume that we're just going to assume that you're going to use these Bluetooth headphones that we're going to provide, right? Or any other Bluetooth. Unfortunately, for better or worse, government doesn't have a forcing function out there that's forcing them to get rid of that headphone jack. So yeah, the government's always going to say, "My requirement is for something with a headphone jack." Exactly. Yeah. They're always going to keep, and the and the vendors are very happy to continue selling them headphone jacks, but you know. The reality is that may no longer be what they want. That may be, or excuse me, that may be what they want, but it isn't what they need. Right. <laughs> and I think that Subaru does a great job of helping say, you know, kind of, hey, the emperor has no clothes or, hey, maybe you don't need that headphone jack. And here's an alternative way to pr- provide that. And so, number one, from, I think from the government's perspective, it is a new channel to bring in vendors whose interests are fully or solely aligned to delivering a product, delivering a capability, rather than establishing themselves in the palm. You know, these aren't people by and large who are trying to create programs of record that they're going to sit and live off of for decades. These are companies who are interested in coming in, solving a problem. And actually this is a bit of a, this is a bit of a curse of the program as well, that it is people who have such discrete interests around solving a problem. But it creates this nice opportunity for the federal government to get exposure to new ideas, new solutions. And on the other hand, it creates this opportunity for commercial companies to gain access to growth capital, gain access to federal R&D facilities, gain access to a lot of things they need as young businesses without giving up any equity. Yep. So it's a nice, nice transit, nice balance. Let's, uh, let's define a couple. You dropped a couple acronyms on, on uh, there. Sure. Uh, POM, a program objective memorandum, I think. And that think is so. the, the document that, that it's the funding request document that, that flows through, through at least the DOD side. Mm-hmm. And uh, program record is the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. That's what you want to become, that's what you want your product or program to become if you're a federal contractor, because that means it's part of the budget that is funded year after year. The government market is a bit different than, than the commercial market in, from the, the, the sales and, and marketing perspective. Government folks aren't subjected to the same sales cycle and sales processes that, that uh, commercial companies are used to. And government contractors get used to, to some of them get used to sitting around and waiting for something to be posted. And then, oh, I can bid on that. Mm-hmm. Sippers actually give you the opportunity to pitch ideas, to present ideas that the government hasn't thought of and hasn't written a firm requirement for yet. They just say, we kind of some, want something to do with landing on the moon. Tell, tell us how you might help. Yeah, so I think that I think you're touching on a really important piece of the of the Sibbers advantage. 
because the requirements tend not to be as tightly defined, you know, and, and this is not always the case. Like I was reading about, I was reading the, the topic, the cyber topics drop that just came out, you know, whatever, two, three weeks ago from DOD. And some of them are extremely tightly defined. Yeah. You know, there's really, you have, I, my, my read was that you had very few degrees of freedom <laughs> in the solution set that you wanted to provide. But a lot of them were, were quite broad. You know, it was kind of more to your, your example of, hey, help us land on the moon. You know, where you could say, hey, there's, that's a wide open field. There are a lot of different ways you could help someone land on the moon. And that provides a lot of opportunity because, and you know, as someone who is a relatively new entrant into the federal market, one of the most challenging things I found was figuring out who the customer was. <laughs> you know, you just have this extraordinarily large institution that is the U.S. federal government. Yeah. And you have something that you do. You know, a lot of people on here, I suspect, are in cybersecurity. It's, the, it's one of the hottest areas right now. Everyone seems to be in cyber. And you're, you're saying, oh, great, I've got, a cyber, I've got a cybersecurity product or service. I'm really excited about it. And if you go to Bank of America, you go to Walmart, any of these other companies, you can find the chief security officer and you can find, you know, the people who are on LinkedIn that list themselves as being right. responsible for cybersecurity in for this company. And you can reach out to them. And it's a, it's a, in my experience, it's a fairly fluid conversation because they have a mission and they have a lot of autonomy to fulfill that mission. And in fact, they're being held responsible for their success at securing their company's networks and their company's data. Conversely, in my experience, it's, it's, a, it's a much more challenging conversation when you're reaching out to a program officer, someone who has a responsibility around, for this example, cybersecurity. Right. I, I find that I reach out to them on LinkedIn and there, there just seems to be a lot of fear. You know, <laughs> it becomes a very um, emotionally challenging yeah. conversation for the people because I think there's, you know, rightly or wrongly, there is a perception within government acquisitions officers that if they talk to a vendor, they're putting themselves in danger. Or, yep. you know, they have to be very tightly controlled in these interactions to ensure that they don't, they don't step out of line. Right. And the SBIR program creates a bit of a safe harbor in that because... The, the requirements already been put out. You know, it's been said, we are looking for, you know, we, the Army, are looking for this kind of a network security product or network security solution. So if you can start reaching out and say, hey, there's, there's already a requirement out there. It's already effectively funded under this R&D pot of money that is being allocated against SIBRs. I would love to talk to you about what this Army requirement means to you. You know, you and you, so you're saying, so when you reach out on LinkedIn, when you read, when you are right. flipping through your Rolodex, it becomes a much easier conversation because then yeah, they tell you who, who to talk to, who, and who might be receptive to listening to your story, right? Instead of going through org charts and trying to figure out who, yeah. who to talk to and can they, will they talk to you now? You know, I would be honest. I think that there, if, you know, I think we'll probably end up getting here about like where could Cibber be better. I, if they would do more of that, that would be a huge leap forward <laughs> because, you know, the, uh, I won't get super inside baseball, but long story short, it's not as transparent as you would wish about who was the originator of that Cibber topic. Yeah. And so I, you know, if any, if any Cibber program officers and policy officers are out there, that would be a huge win. <laughs> yeah, that's a constant podcast theme. 
is mm-hmm. that openness makes everybody's job easier, right? It, yep. it, it brings in companies that suddenly understand what you're looking for and who to talk to that, that might not bid otherwise. So for government folks, the more that you openly discuss your requirements, your needs when you can, the more likely you are to get better solutions. Absolutely. We talked a little bit about the the, the posting for Sibbers. There's a there's a Sibbers drop, I think you called it. There's a there's a whole bunch of requirements that are released at once that say, send us your ideas for these topics and at some point we'll make some selections and get back to you if we want to fund your idea or ask for a more detailed proposal if we want to fund your idea. Mm-hmm. It's a much more streamlined, simplified acquisition process than than most government acquisitions and most people are used to. It's not necessarily simple, but it's simpler, easier. (laughs) Yeah. I I think this is one of the perennial tensions within the program because historically the transition rates, the, the number of SIBRs that go on to be sold back to the federal government, to, you know, to the organization that originally said, Hey, we need a solution for this is historically quite low. You know, we're, yeah. I, I, I ran some numbers and I was kind of estimating it out in kind of the, the teens for what, how many, what percentage of all funded SIBRs actually get sold back. So on the one hand, it's great. And as you point out, the, the, you know, if, if, if I, if, you know, hopefully this isn't anything new to anybody who's listening to your show, but the whole, you know, much like any selling to anybody else, to sell to the federal government like any other customer, you need somebody who has a need. They need to have money to pay you. And you need to have some sort of an agreement. Yeah. So basically, the SIBR takes care of that third piece. <laughs> yep. So it, the, the SIBR becomes the mechanism, the contractual mechanism that facilitates the, uh, the, the transfer of money. But you know, at the end of the day, you still need that customer with a need who has money and is going to go through the, who's going to walk down that path yep. with you. Yep. We call that, on the podcast, we call that the three deciders. There's a user. Mm-hmm. The, the mission need, there's the economic yep. decider that has the money, and then there's a contracting officer that controls the agreement that, that you're talking about, right? So what happens with SIBRs is there's a SIBR program team that has money to do the initial research. So they have a need, which is ideas, they have some money, and there's a contracts person involved that will make the agreement happen. In order to actually transition that whatever you worked on in your R&D into the government and become a government program, that's a different set of people. That's something that if you're incredibly successful with what you're working on, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to go anywhere within the government. There's a whole different skill set required to take that program and transition it. And sometimes it becomes a commercial success. The government has helped fund something that that carries on because a lot of companies that work SIBRs know how to do that. They don't necessarily know how to get it to that next phase on the government side. And that is probably about 10 other podcasts worth of, of talking right, right there. But I think that's a big part of the problem that, that you just mentioned with the low success rate for, for tech transition within the government is that it's a different set of people. The SIBRS the office doesn't take it. As, the, the way it works actually to go from phase one to phase two is the same people that you've been dealing with. A phase three SIBR requires another funding source, an outside user, uh, an organization that says, I want that and I want to bring it in to my group. And that's where things get off the rails. 
Yeah, you know, it's 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 interesting. So I'm, I'm most familiar with the DoD side, mm-hmm. and you see this. So the actual mechanism where this is happening is that units around the you know, it's for army for sake of argument are originating these needs. You know, hey, I need a network security solution. Hey, I need a blood transfusion solution. All these things, and those are all end up getting funneled to Army Research Lab. And Army Research Lab, that is the one that's packaging those needs into cyber statements, into these topics, and then funding them. So reversing the polarity and re- unwinding that at the end, to be able to say, hey, we, we successfully built you your transfusion solution. Who was it that originally asked for that, to your point, is a totally different group of people. One thing I really like about what the Air Force is doing through their AFWORKS dual-purpose cybers is that they're making that linkage much earlier. So while you're in your phase two, while you're still doing that development side of your cyber, they force you before you can make really before you make it to phase two, you have to have found a government customer, an Air Force customer specifically, who is going to number one, help you do your work in your phase two and inform your development and be that customer to, you know, bat iterations and versions with but also set you up to be that, set them up to be that customer so to have a higher phase three transition rate. Yep. So yeah, just shout out to that program for identifying a, pro, a, you know, a gap in their program and starting to create some solutions. Yeah, I, I think that's a great example. A recent development is that there's a stand-up, every department uh, within the Department of Defense and across the DOD, they're standing up separate offices, innovation offices like DIU, AFWorks, um, yeah, Naval X, yeah, Naval X, uh, Ensign, yeah. On, on the surface, it sounds like isn't that what Sibber's doing, right? <laughs> when the Sibber's process seems like it's too slow, <laughs> they've said, "Oh, we have to have something faster, so we're going to pitch days and do all these different things yeah. to speed up the process." The Sibber's process used to be the fast process compared to the usual Air Force or Army or Navy R&D process, right? Mm-hmm. So now they're trying to get even faster. And in the last year, they've actually pulled some money out of the Sibber budget to fund it through these separate yeah. offices. So it's really good to hear that there's organizations that are working on making those connections because the way the Sibber program continues to receive funding and support from the upper levels of the government is they get a return for their investment. They're not just, mm-hmm. it's, it's great to fund the economy and help, help the commercial economy and help small companies grow, but much better if the government gets a return on that investment themselves. Yep, absolutely. All right, let's talk about the most important, the best part of Sippers and why commercial companies would want to contract with the government and get funding from the government to do research and development. And that best part is, unlike usual government development programs, you get to keep your intellectual property. Usually, if the government pays for the development, they get the, the rights. Now, that, that's, that usually statement's really broad. There's lots of nuances there, so don't hit me up with a thousand emails telling me how that's totally wrong. But in most cases, government pays, government owns. Sibbers comes in with the understanding that you're going to do this. The government's going to get an unlimited license to use that for their purposes only, but you own it to do whatever you want to with in the future. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's it's so funny to hear the way that you're framing the that, that, that this is a really amazing, the best part of the cyber program is that you retain your IP. 
And then when I talk to my friends who come from a pure, you know, angel VC backed, you know, kind of your traditional Silicon Valley startup mindset, that that the IP question that they might lose ownership at all, like that that, that would even that that would even be a question is just bewildering to them. <laughs> because they're coming from a place where they say, yeah, okay, a, a, a VC gives me money, I give them equity, of course I keep the IP. Or, you know, it's, you know, and, and it, it, it's, it's table stakes is that you would keep your IP and it would be a, quite an unusual exception if the VC were to have a, be able to stake a claim against that IP. Yep. And then I, you know, we, I come over in my other, the other half of my life, you know, where I'm much more on the government, in working in the government market. And you're right. The baseline assumption is the opposite. That <laughs> if, if I give, if the government, if you're if the VC, the investor being the government in this case, gives you money, well, of course they own the IP. They're paying, that's why they're paying you is to develop right. the IP. And so it's just, a, it's an interesting shift in mindset that I think has scared off a lot of commercial companies from working with the SBIR program is because people on the government side frame this as like the, the this great uh, this great feature and they're looking at it as like oh my gosh this is a flaw that we never even thought we had to ask about <laughs> so it's it's just it I, I've had this basic interaction enough times that I, it, it just always makes me laugh a little bit yeah but you're absolutely right that this is a great piece of the cyber program because it aligns the mechanisms of the cyber program much more closely to the way that commercial companies, you know, these classic startups think about the world, which is with the Cibber program, you keep your IP. And unfortunately, I think that, you know, it's what, what you said also, it's like, you know, the government gets an unlimited license for their use. That freaks so many people out. Yeah. You know, because again, the baseline assumption in government land is you lose your, you, you, you don't keep the IP. And so the way that the Cibber IP regime is, is crafted is as by exception. Yep. It's like the government has unlimited use rights and kind of, you know, kind of quote unquote almost owns it, but it's, but you get to keep it for 20, you know, four years. And as we were talking about earlier, you know, that, that may change, that's probably going to change 20 years. Right. And so it's, it's the way that the government talks about the IP protections are actually very, it's a very generous IP regime, Yeah. but the way they talk about, it, I think scares people off. I think so because too. It's hard to articulate. Yeah, I, th I think so too. There's more confusion around data rights than just about anything else in the, the government contracting world. The key thing you touched on that I think makes the difference as a company working with venture capital, they give you money, you give them equity, you keep mm -hmm. your IP, but it, it's it's dilutive. I think is the mm -hmm. the right financial term right now. Mm -hmm. Your ownership stake is less. They own part of your yeah. company. The government gives you money. You get to keep your IP and they don't own any of your company. So it's a non-dilutive event, which is that, that Amazing. is, yeah, that is the, the real, I think I already said pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. I can't use my, <laughs> my, my lame analogies over and over in one episode. Yeah. I completely agree with you. Like that is the the essence that is the thing that gets companies to pay attention. It's I'm going to get a bunch of funding to develop a product and I'm going to keep all my equity. Yeah. You know, it's as, as unbelievable as this idea that, you know, your IP, you might not keep it like that is equally unbelievable. You know, in this case in the good way, 
Yeah. That yeah. you could, this is the closest thing I've ever heard of to a free lunch. Yeah. It comes with a few, it's not completely free, right? It comes with a few limitations, a few, few issues. We already talked about how, we already talked about how the government's going to get a license to do what they want to do with it, right? They, they paid for it. They get to use it. They don't have to pay you again to use it. Mm-hmm. That, that seems fair given the other benefits that come with Sibbers. But there's other limitations as well, starting with you have to deliver what the government's asking for. If your idea for a product fits the commercial market but not quite the government market, they're going to insist that the development meets their needs and you may have to invest additional money to make it truly commercial in the end. They might get you mm-hmm. part of the way down the path, but not the whole way. So you're not completely on your own to do whatever you want with their money. You know, I think this is, I think you're touching on maybe the most important decision that a company considering Sibber needs to think through. And I, I, I probably, you know, two or three times a week at this point, I get you know, a business or a, a group, you know, some, some group will send a business to me, hey, they're interested in Sibber. And I think there are fundamentally two types of organizations. There's the type of organization that has a really clear sense of themselves and has a product and has a direction that they want to go in. And they're just looking for money to, to fit, to, to be able to build that thing. And if they, and, and they look at the Sibber, you know, list of, op- of, of topics, and they say, wow, this is a, this, this DOD or this department of energy need is super aligned with what we want to be doing. It's, you know, this, this DOD, this Department of Energy need is very similar to our commercial customers' needs. If we fulfill the R&D that the SIBR implies, it would really advance our commercial capabilities as well. And for those companies, SIBR could not be better. It is just perfection. Right. But as those Venn diagrams, as the Venn diagram of the government underlying government need and the Venn diagram of the underlying commercial need separate more and more. And I, I see, I see people, I see companies get really sideways because they want to pursue the, com- the commercial need, but the SIBR is telling them, actually, you need to go 45 degrees off from your true North. And now they're in this weird situation where they're trying to, you know, accomplish both sides of the development. And do they have enough money to do both sides of the development? Here's right. to your point, the government's going to come back a year later and be like, where's my widget? Where's my, where's my answer? Yeah. And you can't say, oh no, we, we, we decided your, your need wasn't interesting. We put all the money into our commercial side. (laughs) That's not a good outcome. Right. But at the same time, I've seen a lot of companies take, go the opposite direction, which is, you know, they wanted to serve a commercial need and they saw this money and they thought it was going to be free money to develop their company. And it, it is, but it took them off in a weird direction. And now all of a sudden they're a company that does, you know, network safety and security for their commercial companies. And they're, you know, uh, you know, they're a tele, you know, they're a bandwidth management solution for the government. And like, fair enough there, you know, if you squint really hard, you can see the connections between the two sides, but the one is not additive. The one is not really substantively enhancing the other. And, and for those companies, it, I, you know, as much as everyone loves free money and, you know, it allows you to hire on more developers, it's just not worth it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm with you there. We talked a little earlier about how the government has shifted to 
some of these pitch days and they, they have new organizations to do things a little bit differently using other transaction authorities. And part of the reason for that is another downside of Sibbers is they do come with a collection of government clauses that you have to be compliant with. And that's another barrier that some companies don't want to have to deal with that the government is trying to break down through the different types of contract awards. So it goes two ways. If you're on one side, you have an easier way to work with the government without having to be compliant with all the government clauses. But if you want to be compliant, or if you already are, you're limiting the pool of people you have to compete with for the, the dollars. So that that's that's sort of a plus and a minus to a cyber all wrapped up in one statement. And speaking of wrapping up, I think now would be a good time. This has been awesome having you today. Great insight. I really appreciate your time. Jeff, if people want to get in touch with you, how would they do that? First of all, thank you so much for having me on. Really enjoyed chatting with you about all things Sibber. And if people want to get in touch with me, two ways, just Jeff with a G, G-E-O-F-F, at federal-foundry.com. I, you know, I get a lot of emails from companies that are thinking about walking down this road. Always happy to spend half an hour on the phone with uh, some young founders about how, to, how they might want to think about this. And I've actually gotten to the point where I'm getting so many of these kind of cold calls with the same questions that I aggregated kind of the, the answers to the most common questions around, you know, is Cibber a good fit for me? What's the timeline? What does it entail? What are my chances of winning? All the questions like that. If you go to our, my website, agency-capital.com, I've got a pretty active blog series of analysis about the program, um, you know, flow charts for how I would encourage people to think about whether Cibber is a good fit for them. Uh, wizards and software that you can download that will help you with all the registrations that you need to do to apply for a Cibber. Um, actually, we just uh, our our app just got on the uh, iOS store, so that's out there that'll help you keep track of the program. So also free. All right, Jeff, that's great. Thanks again, and hope we can do this again soon. Look forward to it. Thank you for joining us today on the Contracting Officer Podcast, and thanks again to Jeff Orzim for his perspective on Sibbers. This episode of the Contracting Officer Podcast is brought to you by Skyway Acquisition, as usual. Skyway's team of experienced government contracting officer consultants is here to help you through your unique GovCon puzzles. Go to skywayacq.com or call 877-884-5280 to learn more. Thanks again. We'll see you next week.